Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jordan Morris. It's Bullseye. Trash Talk is a hardcore punk band. Think Black Flag or Suicidal Tendencies, and you're starting to get the idea. If you read a profile of the band, odds are the writer will let you know that Trash Talk is your favorite rapper's favorite punk band. So what does that mean? Well, there's the label they recorded on, for one, Odd Future, the same place that was home to Tyler the Creator, the Internet, and others. They've also toured with rappers like Action Bronson, and they collaborate with producers who normally work in hip-hop. So at any given Trash Talk show, you'll see a bunch of hardcore kids in the crowd, but also some Action Bronson fans, and a few Odd Future fans, too. A lot of hardcore bands talk a big game about unity and togetherness, but Trash Talk practices it. Their newest release is an EP called Squalor, and the whole thing is produced by Kenny Beats, another guy who usually works in hip-hop. It's a really exciting record. Let's take a listen to a track off it. It's called Something Wicked. I am here with Spencer, Garrett, and Lee from Trash Talk. Trash Talk, welcome to Bullseye. Thank you. What's good? Yeah, yeah. When was the first time you guys encountered the kind of punk and hardcore music that Trash Talk plays? Garrett, I'll, I'll start with you. Oh, uh, man. My dad kind of got me into punk in like a weird roundabout way. Growing up in the Bay Area, and, um, a, lot of, a lot of different artists and people in the community would come to see him at his restaurant. One of those dudes is like Tim Armstrong, you know, Rancid, uh, Green Day, like all these bands from the area would come through. So my dad always kind of told me to keep my ear to that kind of music. Yeah, this is probably like mid-90s when all the Gilman Street bands were kind of starting to get big. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, then one day he kind of, just to kind of get me away from hanging out in the streets, he kind of had told me, took me over to Gilman and was like, hey, man, check this spot out. I kind of was told it was a cool spot. And that's when I first started really kind of going to shows. And then um, kind of through there, I, I wound up meeting Lee, who kind of delved me a little bit deeper into a more like focused appreciation of punk rock and hardcore. And then uh, I kind of went from there. Yeah. Spencer, how about you? What was your first encounter with, you know, punk hardcore type music? For me, it was probably like sixth, seventh grade. I remember when I was a fifth grader, I went to my parents' uh, high school reunion, like a picnic type thing. And of course, being a kid, I had no, wanted no part of that. But I, uh, one of their <laughs> friends uh, had a son that was a few years older than me. And we had our, you know, it was the 90s. So we had our little CD booklets and we were comparing which CD singles and which CDs we had. And he and I both had a Quad City DJ's uh, The Train single and a Jimi Hendrix uh, CD. And so he, I was like, oh, he likes the same music I listen to. <laughs> and then he kind of had some uh, punk rock compilations in there. I kind of started looking at some of the stuff like the Cinema Beer Nuts or uh, I, recall, I don't recall which, which comp it was exactly. But from there, I was like, oh, let me start picking these things up because if he likes what I like, I'll probably like this. Yeah. Fat music for fat people, maybe? That one, I, I actually think I got that one a little bit later once I was like fully into skateboarding, like when I was maybe eighth grade. But definitely along those along those lines the fat records comps the uh 
and then even from there, I kind of started picking up like the, some pessimizer type stuff and like the, some of the harder stuff just cause it was a compilations. And I was like, you know, I can listen to 60 bands for $3 and see what I like out of here. Uh, yeah. Lee, how about you? Uh, what was the, what was your first experience with punk type music? Um, I feel like when I was, I don't know, in middle school, I kind of, I remember distinctively like making playlist of any song that my favorite skateboarders would skate to, you know? I would take like whatever, like whether it be like a Baker video or Alien Workshop video or girl video. And like, it's kind of one of those things where you would listen to music and then feel like you're that skater for a second. You know, it's like if I'm listening to what Andrew Reynolds is skating to, then maybe I'll skate like Andrew Reynolds. But it was so it was kind of like I feel like skate videos and stuff kind of led me into that. And then distinctively remember a friend of mine named Jason, who I went to middle school with, I, I bounced around a couple of middle schools getting kicked out. And then I ended up having to go to a school that I had to take the bus kind of far away to go to. Cause it was one of those like only schools that will accept me in the district type joints. And I remember seeing this kid who was always just like, he looked like he was into the same as me, whether that be like skating or whatever. And he was always listening to and always kind of like extra amped up at like, 5.36 in the morning that we had to wake up to catch the bus. <laughs> so through him, like he was, I, I remember asking him what he was listening to and he's listening to like the Bad Brains and Minor Threat and all these like entry level gateway bands. And then through Jason, I kind of got like deeper into the actual scene where I was from. Cause I remember being like, well, where does this, where does this type of music happen? You know, like, where can I see this? Or is there like new stuff? Can I see it? And then from there, he like led me and pointed me towards venues and local bands and like just bands that are, were current, you know? Cause it's like, yeah, we could listen to like all the bad brands of black flag we want, but you can't really like feel or experience that. So through him, like single-handedly, he kind of like opened up my whole brain as far as like even deeper than the music, just like, where to find it, where the community existed, like where shows happen, all that, you know? Yeah, let's, uh, this is a good segue to uh, start talking about uh, the first time you guys got out to see live music. And you mentioned Gilman Street, a, uh, you know, kind of famous all ages kind of DIY uh, venue in Berkeley. Um, yeah, I'd love to hear about some of the first time you went off to see like music that was your taste rather than something your, you know, parents dragged you to. Uh, Garrett, I'll start with you. Oh man, uh, I don't know. One of my one of my first shows, I feel like at Gilman probably was either like an all bets off show, or I think that's what it was, you know. And uh, I, I I remember it pretty fondly because I just felt kind of out of place. Like I think I had like a do rag and like a throwback jersey on or something, but <laughs> I didn't I didn't really understand what I was at, but I was just going because my pops told me to go there, you know, and. Um, but I remember like uh, almost immediately just like kind of like kind of being embraced by kids around me and, and meeting friends and leaving that place feeling like, man, I got to be here for the next show. I got to be here for the next experience. You know, that's something that uh, I, I really appreciate kind of about going to shows and the scene in that way, because that's kind of how that's how I met Lee. You know, that's how I met Spencer. It's just like everybody kind of came together and became homies, you know, just through being in the same room, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Like my my first show I went to was with with, with a couple of buddies of mine, and I hadn't been into 
punk rock for too long or like super into it for too long. And there was this venue in Bakersfield called Jerry's Pizza that's been around for a while and still there, uh, though it just changed ownership recently. And I remember walking downstairs and it was some some oi band was playing and seeing a bunch of skinheads and being like really freaked out because I knew that there was I knew about skinheads, but being from Bakersfield, the contingency or for me to, to really the contingent's a little bit more conservative just politically so i was expecting to walk into a bunch of hammerskins and i was instantly just like kind of psyched out and scared until i realized that this one dude who actually he's still around this dude keith had a, a anti-swastika tattoo on his chest and i was like oh these are and these are good these are good skins and from then on it was kind of like a always a you know inclusive type deal and never felt like i was put out anywhere in there but that was like the first my first experience with the with the show Talk about going from being, you know, fans who went to a bunch of local shows to guys who started a band yourself. Uh, what was the first discussion like, you know, uh, about, hey, we should form a band? Uh, I mean, for, for me, it was pretty instantaneous. I mean, after that first show, we were going to shows, you know, every Friday, Saturday, Sunday, if our parents would let us, you know, Wednesday, Thursday, any night of the week. And pretty, pretty much right after that, it was like, dude, we got to start a band. And from there, I mean, I, this was years before I met Lee and Garrett, and uh, I just kind of started playing right away. So it was just, it was pretty, pretty instantaneous for me. So you guys all live in LA now, right? Uh, yeah, I'd love to hear about uh, the decision to make LA your home base. Garrett lives in Australia. Yeah, Garrett's in Australia <laughs> now. But but when we wow. did move here, uh, it was it was an opportunity for us to kind of all live in the same place because we we'd been pretty scattered. Like when the band first started, I was moving back from Washington and lived in Bakersfield at the time and was traveling up pretty much every weekend to practice and write and play shows and stuff. And uh, Garrett and Lee both lived in separate homes. We lived in Washington, Seattle for for a while together. Lee and I lived together and Garrett lived in a separate spot. So coming to LA, it was kind of an opportunity for us to all be in the same unit and kind of create around the clock and all be to kind of together. So that was kind of the, the basis behind that. In those early days, we toured so much so that it didn't really feel like we lived anywhere specifically. Mm-hmm. It was just kind of like we live in a van and we live wherever, wherever we end up that night. But I think coming to L.A. specifically was the first time that we were like, yo, let's build our own clubhouse type thing where we could like, this is where we ship our merch out of. This is where we make designs. This is where we make music. This is where we skate. This is where everything happens under this one roof. And it was because we moved around together for a while. Like we lived in the Northwest and then we got like stuck on the East coast. And then there was like a time right before LA where we just, we got an apartment together in London and we're like, Oh, we're just going to be here and play shows in the UK and play shows in Europe. And, And then after that was all done, I think we were coming home from a tour or something. I can't remember. Or coming home from Europe. And we were like, let's move into a warehouse. And I think Garrett just looked one up on Craigslist and rented it. What was Wait, what was it like living in a warehouse? It was sick. <laughs> yeah, it, was it was advertised as a live workspace. It, ultimately, it wasn't a live space. <laughs> <laughs> the area that we lived in wasn't necessarily an area that you would just, this is like before 
warehouses were all the rage and like, yo, let's live in like a cool loft with like exposed bricks. This was like a, across the way they're sewing clothes and we just so happen to live in this thing with a roll down that leads into an alley and it's dusty. But with that place, we were able to kind of make our own clubhouse with whatever the we wanted to do, whether it's like cover the walls and our friends graffiti or build a studio or we like just kind of like a place where we could make all of our little kid dreams like one place, you know? Do you think there's something about trash talk in particular that draws in kids that you might not expect to see at a punk show? If you look at trash talk as a as a person that's not necessarily into hardcore or into punk or or even at a greater level, you know, into crossover thrash, whatever, you can look at it, trash talk and potentially identify with something else, whether it's you looking at looking at somebody, you know, when I was a kid, when I was, thir- you know, 13 years old and I saw a picture of the bad brains before I knew what they sounded like. I saw four dudes that looked more like me than any of these other bands. And I was like, whatever this sounds like, I'm going to check it out. And I feel that there's a bit of that that's going on. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's a huge thing. Like, um, you know, even when I first started getting into punk and I started really enjoying stuff, I, I, I stumbled upon bad brains probably later, you know. And I always kind of figured, like, why is it not, like, more of a representation of people that look like me? You know what I mean? So when it was time for us to, like, make our band and all that, I always thought that that was dope, you know? And I, and I think that that relates to a lot of a lot of people, too, from from different different backgrounds and different walks of life. Uh, yeah, I'd love to talk about your guys' new EP, Squalor. So it is out now. It was supposed to be out a little bit earlier this month, but you guys decided to delay the release because it was, you know, so close to, you know, all the stuff going on around uh, Black Lives Matter. Yeah, talk about the decision to delay the release and if that was a tough conversation to have. Uh, it wasn't a tough conversation to have. It's a bit of an of a of a time to navigate for a lot of people, but for us, it was just you know you want to just kind of take away some of the static um, so people can can understand what's going on. But at the same time, we you do you don't you don't want to be a distraction, but you also don't want to quiet yourselves. You don't want to uh, to mute yourselves either. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I thought I, I definitely thought it was important to just like kind of let things breathe and let people pay attention to what's actually going on. You know, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of noise in the world right now, you know, and, um, you know, it's, it's good to hone in and lock in on what's important. And for, for us at the time, it just, it kind of music wasn't the most important thing. So. Squalor you guys made with producer Kenny beats, who is mainly known for being a hip hop producer. Talk about how you got in touch with him and why you thought he was the right guy for the job. Uh, Kenny's just a friend that we've known through LA and music and he's on his, his, his wild producer tip where he wants to spread his wings and touch this genre and touch this genre and like show people that in the same way that we feel where it's like, it doesn't need to be one style specific, you know, like he can make a punk hardcore record. He could make like crazy rap and then he can go work with, Dominic Fike or Omar Apollo and just like showing the versatility. And I feel like as far as working with a producer, 
who's able to capture that, Kenny's the perfect perfect person for it because he kind of he knows that things don't really need to be so boxed in all the time, you know. Yeah, for sure. And and you know, and Kenny just uh, Kenny's like just a dope musician as well. You know what I mean? And like that's that's really tight, man. To be able to like be able to hand somebody a guitar and like they tell you what, tell you what they're saying, you know, what they're thinking, you know, that, that's that's something I really admire about Kenny for sure. Yeah, for sure. He appreciates music across the board, and it was it was cool to have someone with with some legit input. Like, oh, I see what like he understood what we were doing. We were making a part, and like it was, it was really it was it was unique to the, to the experience. It was awesome. We'd love to work with them again. Yeah, can you touch on a particular moment in the album or a particular song where you changed something substantial because of his input? It wasn't anything really like like structurally that was changed. It would be more. Uh, Kenny's uh, production on it was more creating a uh, like a soundscape, creating uh, dynamics uh, within the music. I think unlike most punk records that you would put on, it kind of flows from song to song. There's kind of connective tissue that kind of blends the songs in a way that you don't usually hear on that kind of record. Um, is that his influence or is that something you guys wanted going in? I think that's like him sprinkling a little bit of Kenny in, you know, and tying it together. Yeah, he did some some beats. There's some beats in there with uh, sampled from the stems of the tracks that were that are on the record. You have worked with other hip hop producers in the past, but also, uh, you know, Joby Ford and Steve Albini. Like uh, Joby is from the from the Bronx. Uh, Steve Albini is from Steve Albini. Um, yeah. Do, did you notice a difference working with uh, someone who does mainly hip hop versus these guys who do mainly rock music? I think that it's been a lot different, you know, like the Steve Albini kind of production style is very just like let you do your thing, you know, kind of a hands off type of style. Which, which I thought was really rad, you know, and it comes across in his in, in the records, you know. Yeah, it's very raw. With a lot of like the the hip hop guys, you know, it, it's uh, uh, like with Alchemist and stuff. It's something that we kind of did post create the creating process, you know, and we sat in the studio and remade parts, you know, with stuff that was already created. But um, it's it's just like a completely different kind of input. But with Kenny, you know, what I mean, we did both the creative and the after part, you know, we did it all kind of together. So. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit different each time. We'll wrap up with trash talk after a short break. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast comes from HelloFresh. Get fresh, pre-measured ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your door with the meal kit delivery service HelloFresh. Make home cooking fun, easy, and affordable. There's something for everyone, including low-calorie, vegetarian, and family-friendly recipes. Listeners can go to HelloFresh.com slash Bullseye80, that's Bullseye80, and use code Bullseye80 to get $80 off, including free shipping on the first box. Additional restrictions apply. Visit HelloFresh.com. Rocket Ship One, this is Mission Control. Come in. This is Rocket Ship One. Go ahead. Rocket Ship, what's your status on Max Fun Drive? Shouldn't we have seen it by now? Sorry about that, Mission Control. Turns out I miscalculated. 
Current projected ETA for Max Fun Drive is July 13, but it looks different. It'll be for four weeks, so it's longer than expected, but all readings point to low key. Oh, that'll be good. But can you verify that there are still special gifts for new and upgrading monthly members? Verified. Sweet gifts for new and upgrading members, plus amazing new episodes and even special weekly live streams for charity. Happy that. Rocketship, can you confirm ETA for Max Fun Drive? 90% probability of Max Fun Drive from July 13 to August 7. Did you say 90%? There were a couple of decimal places and I might have carried a zero wrong. I'm just going to pencil in July 13 to August 7. Mission Control out. Whenever you face a choice, it helps to think like an economist. And this week on Planet Money Summer School, we'll start off our course in economics with a workout for your brain. How to decide what something truly costs. Listen now to Planet Money from NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jordan Morris, in for Jesse Thorne. My guests are Garrett Stevenson, Spencer Pollard, and Lee Spielman, members of Trash Talk. The hardcore band has a new record out. It's an EP called Squalor. You can buy it or stream it now. Let's get back to the conversation. I'd love to talk more about the lyrics of your guys' songs. I think I would describe your guys' like, interpersonal vibe as very chill. You're very chill dudes. But the lyrics are not always chill. In the song Something Wicked that we played at the top of this interview, there's a refrain where you say, I commit to total warfare, which is uh, super intense. It's actually, uh, the line is argument through total warfare. And it's kind of a commentary that we can argue, like you, we could talk all day long, but if fools aren't talking and fools don't want to talk, then it's just going to, it's, it's futile. It don't matter. Yeah. I'd love to hear more about what inspired that song. Where did the, where did the idea for that idea start? Uh, so something wicked, actually, it's strangely enough, the work, one of the working titles for this song was bootlicker. And uh, it kind of. It started out, it's like a lot of our songs are, are uh, not necessarily about specific situations or things. It's kind of a concept that applies to multiple situations. But this one is a, uh, it's definitely, there's almost no, uh, <laughs> there's, there's kind of no, no, uh, no gray area in that. I feel like there's a lot of early trash talk songs that are about like, being bored and feeling kind of numb, but it seems like there are more recent Trash Talk songs that are about kind of like springing into action. Is that something you guys feel like personally? Do you guys feel more motivated to say something with music? I mean, there was, there's always been a, a running theme of stand up to the oppression, fight back within the lyrics, uh, but it's, it's now becoming more, they're less ambiguous than they used to be. It's a, uh, it's a little less in like a fantasy world and a little bit more street level now. There's a trash talk song I'm thinking of, an earlier trash talk song, where you kind of like describe a, a corpse that's like being eaten by rats or maybe is like... Yeah, passersby, they sucking on a dead man's skin. Yeah, it was a lot. That was like a, a real post-apocalypse. Like that's what a lot of the early lyrics was post-apocalypse. It's like, it's basically the the trajectory we were going towards. Like, it's just a, a wasteland. Like it's 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 it was really bleak, but... You know, now it's 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 less about the the abyss. It's more about what you can see and what you can actually do. Open your eyes, the 
what drew you to that kind of like intense heavy metal imagery? What, uh, yeah, what made that a go-to for you know a way to write songs? Uh, a lot of the stuff I was listening to, a lot of the stuff I was reading, like a lot of stuff I was interested in writing was kind of like more more on that basis. Is it's fun to write about stuff like that when you're you know 19 years old. <laughs> But, you know, as you get older, it's it, it becomes more fun to kind of see how people will relate to what you're writing and how, you know, how you can express yourself in such a like in a less nihilistic way in a less at a less like, you know, screw everything like everything's bleak, everything's death. It's things things aren't as aren't as black and white as they used to be. What is it like when you guys talk to, you know, teenage trash talk fans? Are there trash talk tattoos of people told you, you know, trash talk saved my life. What is it like talking to kids who you, you know, kind of were 10 or 15 years ago? Yeah, there's definitely been a mix of both of that. It's it's awesome. It's it's great to be a band and to be something that people are looking to the way that I looked at other bands like when I was a kid, you know, things that in anywhere from, you know, that song was sick or to I was in a really dark place and this helped me out or you know whatever it's it's all it's all love it's all great also man like more than more than just kids like you know like there's a lot of people that we've grown with you know as as that were younger when we started you know and now we're just like grown men and have to have their own different things going on you know what i mean and and like we've always still been able to connect through music you know and like it's 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 that's that's like a really really cool thing to me that people could grow with the band you know well, this is Trash Talk. Uh, Trash Talk, thanks for coming on Bullseye. Thank you. I appreciate it. Sick, man. Trash Talk, folks. Garrett Stevenson, Spencer Pollard, and Lee Spielman. Their latest release is called Squalor. It's available to buy or stream now. They'll be hitting the road on tour whenever, you know, it's safe for bands to tour again. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is produced out of the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around Greater Los Angeles, where producer Kevin Ferguson made a drink called a shrub out of some extra beets he had lying around. He says it tastes great when paired with sparkling water. His wife says it tastes like salad dressing. And hey, if you enjoyed my talking on Bullseye, uh, why not try Jordan Jesse Go? It's a comedy podcast with me and the usual host of this show, Jesse Thorne. We have on uh, great guests every week and just make them participate in nonsensical nonsense. Uh, it's very dumb and a ton of fun, and I think you'll like it. Uh, Jordan Jesse Go, wherever you get your podcasts. Bullseye is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio and Jordan Cowling are our associate producers. We also get help from Casey O'Brien. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. You can keep up with the show on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.